Let me begin by telling you a story about two churches. Are we good on that, Josh? Good to go. One is Capitol Hill Baptist Church. As uh, many of you know, Robert and I spent eight months in the U.S. last year, and most of that was spent uh, with me doing an internship at CHBC. Uh, You probably know already a lot of what the church is about, what they stand for, because the senior pastor, Mark Dever, has written uh, several books about the church. But what you probably don't know much of is what it's like to actually be part of that church. What often you don't hear or, or see, the way the members care for one another, or the way they're involved in sharing the gospel with Uh, their community and uh, their neighbours and their friends and family around them. You don't hear about or see the way that they get involved in their local communities and they help others in need, or the way many members will uh, sacrifice significantly for fellow members, such as the time when one member who had some uh, mental uh, struggles and difficulties didn't have anywhere to stay, and so the church organised some housing for her, but she refused that. And so a fellow member who was concerned for her welfare actually went uh, and slept on the park bench near the same park bench that she was sleeping on because he was worried about her safety. They are a church that seeks to beacon the gospel to the world. Well, down the road from CHBC, just a few kilometers away, is Calvary Baptist Church. This is a church that prides itself on its various outreach programs into the community, and its various elements of work that it does in the community, its Sunday school classes that it holds for children every week, its inclusivity and its sanctuary for immigrants. Having recently appointed a married lesbian couple as the new senior pastors, the chair of the search committee of uh, searching for the senior pastor from this church, remarked, we were struck by their deep faith and commitment to being part of a gospel community. This is also a church that seeks to beacon the gospel. The question is, which one is actually doing it? Which one is actually beaconing the gospel to the world? You see, in our passage this morning, Paul's primary concern is whether the church is acting like the world by hauling each other uh, to court, or whether they are living a life that says to the world, loud and clear, we are saved by grace, and that has changed us. And so as we work our way through this passage this morning, I want us to ask ourselves this question. Will we be like the world, or will we beacon the gospel? to the world. Be beacon. That's it. I'm trying to help you remember that. And given that uh, Paul has laid in this whole passage with a barrage of rhetorical questions, I'm not sure if you noticed that, he just question after question after question after question. Questions that uh, they're rhetorical, meaning the answer is obvious in the asking of the question. Well, I have three points this morning that will follow in the same vein, and most of them are rhetorical. And so let's dive right in with open Bibles. And uh, of course, if you don't have one, you're welcome to keep the blue ones that we have there. 
It's on page 555, our passage. Let's have open Bibles, open ears, open hearts, open minds as we explore what Paul says in this passage. And so, our first point this morning, will, will, will we be self-glorifying or God-glorifying? Will we be self-glorifying or God-glorifying? Let's have a read from verse 1 together. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Does he dare go to law? How dare you? Whenever we hear that phrase, we know something serious has just been done or said, right? Paul uses this word in a similar way that shows the severity of what he's addressing. He says, when one of you has a grievance against another, something that you, uh, you know, are, are annoyed about or you've got an issue with another person, another member, does he dare go to law? Would you really take a brother or sister to court over trivial matters, minor grievances? Now, in, in order to make sense of this statement, because there's a lot that doesn't make, wouldn't make sense to us about it, uh, I need to pile you all into my time machine and take you back to the world of Corinth in the first century. It's a big time machine. You'll all fit. Uh, because for us here in Darwin in the 21st century, minor disagreements and going to court over that just, just doesn't make any sense. Well, back in this era, in the first century, the courts were far more corrupt than what we have the privilege of enjoying in our society. Now, you might think that our society's courts are corrupt. Well, that is nothing compared to first century Corinth. A passage from a satirical novel by Petronius in the first century gives us an example of what this is like. Of what avail or of what use are laws to be where money rules alone and the poor suitor can never succeed. These local courts where these uh, minor civil disagreements were dealt with, they were places where the rich and the powerful ruled. And if you were lower in the social pecking order, then you would, just, you would never bother taking somebody who was higher in the, in the pecking order against you because you, you will never win. It's impossible. As a matter of fact, the courts, they became a place where you could advance your social standing by getting scalps and wins over your opponents. And that's exactly why people would drag others before them for something as small as an insult. And if you had plenty of money, oftentimes the witnesses were actually weighed as to how reliable they were depending on how much money they had or what standing that they were in society. And so this, this practice of actually uh, pulling others in front of the court, it wasn't just about winning or getting you know, money or, or reimbursement or, or compensation for the hurts. It was about crushing your opponent. It was about uh, being able to be so clever rhetorically that you could dismantle them completely and really slander and slam their character. And so if you were going to do this, you had to take into account the fact that if you dragged uh, somebody else in front of the court, your relationship would be permanently damaged. Uh, New Testament scholar Bruce Winter call, talks about it uh, being, uh, using this great word, uh, muckraking. Uh, so the person, the, the defendant would have all sorts of fabrications 
and all sorts of claims made against them with this explicit purpose of assassinating their character. So you could, you could sling as much mud at them as you liked, and even if what you said didn't even have anything to do with the actual matter at hand that you brought them in front of court for, the point was to be able to make them look so bad that their reputation was utterly destroyed. Now, in that kind of culture, where status advancement was more important than the welfare of their brothers and sisters, you can see why Paul is shocked that the church would be involved in this. Do you dare go to law against each other? You're seriously getting involved in that, in that practice? Instead of dealing with grievances amongst yourselves and and handling them among the saints, you're hauling one another before the court and you're doing it before the unrighteous? Paul here is, in using those terms, you notice in verse 1, he talks about the unrighteous and he compares them with the saints. Well, he is continuing here, like we looked at last week, that bright line of distinction between insiders and outsiders in the church. In chapter 5, that's the language that he used, but this time he now talks about saints and the unrighteous and adds a moral layer over that distinction. He calls those inside the church saints, also known as holy ones. These aren't people who have done great miracles and have achieved another level of, of Christian sainthood. No, no, They are those who have been made holy. And he contrasts them with those outside the church, the unrighteous. And he maintains this distinction as he continues. Let's read from verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to trial trivial cases? Try. Do you not know that we are to judge angels. How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? Paul goes on to say, why, as Christians, we should be competent in dealing with small matters. Because we're going to judge the world. That's a rather incredible statement, don't you think? He's already talked about how the church is to judge and expel the immoral brother in chapter 5. And now he's talking about how we will one day judge the world and angels. Excellent. What's he referring to? What is he talking about? Well, what Paul is likely talking about here is the fact that all who trust in Christ will one day reign with him. There are several passages in Scripture that we can point to for this, but perhaps the clearest is Daniel chapter 7, verse 22. It says, Until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. God is the one who will reign and will ultimately judge. And yet, He will do that with the saints by His side. 
Now, you'll find other passage, passages in Scripture, if you're taking notes, uh, talking about this kind of thing with regard to judging the world or judging angels in particular. Uh, they're there on the screen. And so, what the Bible means by these passages is, is not exactly clear, uh, especially because if we look in chapter 5, we, I mean, just a few verses ago, Paul said, God is the one who will judge the outsider. And so, he says, we, we're not to judge the outsiders. And so, God is clearly the one who will finally judge all people. But what we can affirm is that Paul, in these verses, is pointing to the kingdom that Jesus began on earth 2,000 years ago, and He will bring in all its fullness at the end of time when He returns. And when He does, His bride, His church, will reign with Him. And so, in some sense, Paul is pointing to how those who are in Christ will be part of this judgment, even though we ourselves won't be the ones doing the judging. So, there is certainly some mystery in terms of what that looks like. We, we don't know exactly, metaphysically, how that's going to work. But Paul's point is a clear one. And this is what we call an argument going from the greater to the lesser. From the greater to the lesser. If you can do the greater thing, or if you will indeed do the greater thing, as Paul says, if you are going to be in Christ, reigning, judging, at the end of time, over the world well, then surely you should be able to do the lesser thing. You should be able to deal with these minor grievances, these trivial matters among you. An example of this argument would be, if you can make soup, then surely you can boil water. Right? I can't do either. (laughs) Paul is saying, because you will judge the world, surely you can judge these matters in the church. The logic checks out. But Paul isn't done. There are more implications of this truth for the here and now. Let's read from verse 4. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? If this is true, Paul says, let me ask you again rhetorically to really make my point. Why would you do this? Why on earth would you bring these matters before those who have no standing in the church? Or as the NIV puts it, those whose way of life is scorned in the church. Why would you bring these internal matters before those who are unrighteous, who are unbelievers? Once again, Paul is saying there is a clear distinction between those who live with Christ as Lord and Savior and those who do not. Those who are insiders and those who are outsiders. Paul is saying you're you're submitting these issues, these problems to those who have so-called worldly wisdom. And as we've already seen in the, in the letter that he's written, that is not wisdom at all. That is not the wisdom of the cross. 
Now, just a point of clarification here. It's clear that Paul is referring to civil matters, civil disagreements, little, uh, these kinds of issues. He's not talking about criminal law. So just to clarify that. And, but that's the reason why Paul makes a big deal of it here. The church should be able to deal with these matters because an unbeliever doesn't understand the way a Christian thinks. That's not because they might not be skilled in mediating, but because they don't have the wisdom of the cross. Just ask Josh about how different legal mediations are between Christians compared to non-Christians. Their categories, their priorities, what they want to get out of the mediation are completely different. Paul is saying you should be dealing with this in-house instead of airing your dirty laundry before the world. And Paul puts a fine point on it by saying, I say this to your shame. I say this to your shame. As we mentioned a few weeks ago, at the end of chapter 4, Paul made a specific point to say that he's not trying to shame them make them feel ashamed about their boasting, but right here he is very, very clear. This act of dragging each other before the courts and seeking to gain an advantage over a brother or a sister, over others in the church, is shameful. But that's not the only thing that's shameful. Because this sentence can actually, uh, does actually apply to the next sentence that he says, which is really a bit of biting irony in Paul's use of the word wise. For those who've been with us for the journey of preaching through Corinthians, you'll remember that the Corinthians boasting in their so-called wisdom is something that Paul very sharply and very clearly uh, addresses in the first four chapters of this book. The divisions were based on the fact that they thought they were so wise that they had uh, outgrown this gospel thing. And Paul was, makes it very clear to them, no, you do not outgrow the gospel. The wisdom of the cross is the very foundation of all Christ, Christian wisdom. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Now, you can bet that the Corinthians hearing that would not have missed that point. That was very intentional use. Here they are thinking they're so brilliant, they're so wise, and yet here they are doing one of the dumbest things you could possibly do. Shamefully making a mockery of themselves by playing the same Corinthian one-upmanship game trying to gain an advantage over others, taking each other to the court so that they can advance themselves further. The very people, these unbelievers that the Corinthian Christians were dragging one another in front of, these were the very people who should have been wondering what is so different about being a Christian. They should have been coming to hear the gospel because of the, the way these Christians were living such different lives. And now, here they are, being given every reason to believe that, well, Christians, I suppose, are just the same as everybody else. 
their faith apparently hadn't changed them at all. Brother takes brother to court, thinking only of himself. It's worth noting here that Paul uses the language of brother very intentionally. You know, obviously he's been using it all along in this letter, and I've continued to point out to each of us that when he says brothers, he's referring to the whole church, including the sisters. But here, in this context, it takes on an intensified meaning. Because you see, back then, you would never have taken a family member to court in this way. You wouldn't have done it. Paul is saying, as a church, you are a family. And as a family, your relationship is supposed to be completely different. And so this only heightens the fact that the Corinthians are even doing this at all. Now, for us today, I'm thankful that we don't have uh, any of this going on in our church. At least as far as I'm aware. If it is, please tell me. But for starters, I mean, our courts, they're not set up the way that they are. You're not gaining any social uh, advantage by taking somebody else to court. You're not trying to uh, big note yourself or make a name for yourself. Uh, People, as far as I'm aware, don't um, go to court if somebody insults your beard. And in addition, our church is, well, it's small enough and has enough close relationships at this point, that we really should be able to handle these sorts of grievances with one another. But it is worth us thinking about how we can continue to cultivate a culture that deals with disagreements and conflict in a godly way. Because not only will that set us up well, should the Lord add more to our number and it becomes more challenging to do that in a bigger church, but it will be a beacon to the world around us. As Christians, our calling to make peace is one that stands out in our culture. Will we seek to be peacemakers in our church rather than peace breakers? Will we be people who seek God's glory over our own? If you haven't read the book, The Peacemaker, or the shorter version of it, Resolving Everyday Conflict by Ken Sandy, then let me strongly encourage you to read it. It is an excellent book. Or you can talk to Josh, our very own peacemaking pro pastor. In addition, another thing we can do is seek to resist muckraking one another. Now, this can obviously happen in person when we talk to others about people in our church, about other members, brothers and sisters, but it can also happen on social media. These days, there are all sorts of public forums where we can slander one another, we can drag people's names through the mud. And, you know, it needn't even be something necessarily nasty. It could just be a careless comment or a joke that goes too far? Do you watch your words in public when you speak about your brothers and sisters in Christ? 
Hugh told me last week about how the Lord has been working in his heart to humble him and to seek not to win arguments and have reason to boast, but to point people to Jesus and to his word. And so just the other week, he posted something on Facebook, which drew a rather angry response from a friend that uh, said a lot about where this particular friend was at. He was rather aggressive in his attack against what Hugh said and the underlying theology of it. And by God's grace, uh, Hugh lovingly replied to him without belittling him, without starting a flame war, and yet seeking to show where this brother was understanding the Bible wrongly. And he finished off his message without seeking to show any kind of superiority over him, but in humility offered to this brother to go to the Word together, to seek what God actually says. What a wonderful testament to how God has grown you in not just love for truth, but love for other Christians. This is the kind of thing that shows the world that Christians live by a different wisdom. A wisdom that glorifies God over glorifying self. Seeking to trample others out of your own self-interest, taking your own brother and sister to court over a small issue, going to non-Christians to mediate matters between church members, none of that glorifies God. And just like with last week's chapter, this principle applies to a far higher degree when talking about members of our own church. For Hugh to do that with a brother who's not in his church, that is wonderful. For us to do that with one another, the responsibility is even greater. Our local church is a family And so there ought to be the same kind of love and caring and self-sacrificing for one another that you would naturally find in a loving family. When we seek God's glory above our own glory, then we beacon the gospel to the world. Can you imagine a church that is more preoccupied with building one another up than seeking selfish gain? Can you imagine a church where we'd rather suffer loss, all kinds of loss, monetary loss, social capital, career advancement, than defend ourselves and tear a brother or sister down to others? That is a church that is a city on a hill. And that is a point that is amplified even more by our next section. Point two. Will we be winners or losers? Let's read verses 7 and 8 together. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. These couple of verses give us a clue that what was going on here was more than just small claims court disagreements. Because to be defrauded is no small thing. It's like being robbed. 
And to respond in this way is the kind of thing that stands out to people in the world. I remember when I was younger hearing about a friend who worked in the music industry. And he uh, was cheated out of $20,000 in royalties from a well-known singer at the time, Australian artist. He could have pursued her in court, but he decided to just let it go. Even though this wasn't even between two Christians, this is what Paul is talking about. This is what Paul envisages in this verse. He cleverly uses the language of winning and losing, but then flips the meaning of both. I mean, think about it. How do you determine whether somebody wins or loses in anything, in a game? Well, it all depends on the goal. You know, if I had a certain understanding of AFL footy that, that uh, meant that if I hold on to the ball as long as I can, I win, well, I might think I've won, but I haven't. In the Corinthians' case, they thought they were winners. Why? Because they thought the goal of the game was to win materially, was to beat down their opponents so they could climb high on the social ladder. They thought that was the goal. And Paul comes along to tell them that, no, as Christians, you're playing the wrong game. And in the game that matters most, the game in the eyes of our Heavenly Father, they've already lost. What does he say in verse 7? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why? Because they've completely forgotten that to follow Jesus means to turn the other cheek as he said in Matthew 5. And there are plenty of more examples of that same principle. In particular, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 to 21. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering in, unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure... This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. To this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. This is a consistent theme that existed right from the beginning of Christianity. And the Corinthians have completely forgotten it. The world wrongs and defrauds. The world seeks personal gain, no matter the cost to others and the pain it might cause to others. To act like the world is to forget that Jesus calls you to a cross-shaped life. To be the one doing the wrong and to be the one defrauding is to buy into the wisdom of the world. Christians would rather be wronged and rather be defrauded and rather have their own names be dragged through the mud than have Jesus' name be dragged through the mud. Is that true of you? Do you care more 
for Christ's honour than your own. Are you willing to be wronged and defrauded for the sake of Christ? As Christians, we look to Jesus, the one who went through the ultimate wrong, who was defrauded in a way that none of us could ever imagine because he was purely innocent. There was not even a hint of wrongdoing in his life. There was no charge that anybody could justly bring before him, and yet he suffered humiliation and was wronged so that he could save his people. And so we, in turn, out of thanks, out of gratitude for so great a salvation, willingly do the same for others, especially our brothers and sisters. Don't you see? We cannot do this without the gospel. The gospel completely transforms our hearts and lives in such a way that we can truly be motivated by something other than self-interest and self-glorification. Because Jesus has not only showed us how we can do this, not only has He been an example, as Peter says, but He has also sacrificed Himself on the cross so that our sin could be wiped clean. It's because He's done this that we can truly lay down our lives for others. He is both the means and the example. Because you see, in the court that matters the most, in God's court, you and I are guilty. We are guilty of high treason against God and God's perfect justice sentences us in our sin to an eternity in hell. But the gospel is the good news. It's the good news that every person who turns from their sins and who puts their faith in Jesus has their sin paid for by Christ on the cross. We are like a prisoner who is on death row and who deserves to be there. And Jesus who doesn't deserve to be there. He has come along and He has taken our place in that cell. And He has gone to the electric chair so that we can be free. We haven't just heard about how He's done that with others and now we're inspired to go and do the same. He's not just an example. He has accomplished much more than that. He has actually done that for us. He has freed us. The good shepherd has laid his life down for his sheep. If you haven't responded to that this morning, I urge you to do so. Because without the gospel, we have no hope in seeking to live a life that glorifies God over ourselves. The Corinthians have forgotten that by seeking a win in an earthly court, they completely 
forgotten what Jesus did for them in the heavenly court. And as a result, they were losers. Because the goal of life, once you've come to Jesus, is not about yourself. It's about living for Him. It's no longer about making your name great. It's about making His name great. It's no longer about loving your sin and getting comfortable with it. It's about loving the Savior and seeking to be more like Him. Even if that means being wronged. Even if that means suffering loss. That is the path to winning. To win is to seek to be more like Christ. And that brings me to my third point. Will we be saints or the unrighteous? Paul now returns to the distinction that he made between the saints and the unrighteous that he did at the start. Let's read from verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Did you notice the or at the start of verse 9? You see, this isn't a section that exists on its own, that is somehow disconnected from everything that Paul has just said. He's connecting what he's saying to those comments and that situation. I mean, even the word unrighteous in verse 9 can be translated, as some Bibles will note, as wrongdoers, which connects the language to what he has just said about being wronged. And so Paul is once again intentionally showing that the unrighteous and the saints belong to two different categories. There are those who do the wrong and those who accept it as they look to their Savior. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And in doing what the Corinthians are doing, they are acting like the unrighteous. Paul goes on, to write another list of sins, as he already did twice in chapter 5. But before he does, he gives another important instruction. Do not be, what? Deceived. See, the Corinthians obviously had been already. We, We have picked that up as we've preached through this letter. They'd already brought the world into the church. They'd already deceived themselves into thinking that they could have their Christian faith and still eat worldly wisdom cake. And that is what Paul is addressing. Once again, reminding them, don't be deceived. Now, this list is very similar to the two that we found in chapter 5 that we saw last week. And as I mentioned then, these sins, they're not just random ones that Paul has just pulled out. And obviously he writes plenty of other lists in other letters of things that are sins before God. 
But these are ones that Paul then addresses in this letter. And so here, he now adds three extra ones to those lists. And those are adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, and thieves. The first two are subcategories of that broader category of sexual immorality. And theft is in a similar vein to that of greed and swindling, taking money from or taking possessions from others um, without permission. Adultery, uh, though it's not uncommon in our society, our society, is probably seen by most still to be wrong. Homosexual activity, on the other hand, is strongly defended by our society as not being wrong in any way. And it is certainly an issue that is top of mind for us. Victoria, just a couple of days ago, passed a bill that has now made it illegal to counsel somebody away from homosexual desires, even if that person seeks out that counsel. And so for that reason, I think it warrants a few comments. Firstly, let me say, if you're visiting this morning or if this is something that you struggle with, whether personally or whether it's because you have friends who are close, who are wrestling with this very issue, please hear me when I say that homosexuality doesn't somehow exist in a subcategory of its own and that for those who commit it have a hotter hell reserved just for them. As I said before, the message of the gospel is that all of us have sinned, that all of us fall short because God is holy. And so my sin condemns me just as much as it condemns, as anyone else's sin condemns theirs. But when we respond to Him in repentance and in faith, God changes our hearts such that our desire becomes no longer about wanting to fulfill our sinful desires, no no longer wanting to desire the things of our own flesh, but to desire Christ and to desire satisfaction in Him and pursuing righteousness. And so as Christians, what we do is we all engage in that together as brothers and sisters in Christ who will have different sins to battle. There's much more to say on this front. So if you want to talk about that, please come and see me or one of our other elders. Secondly, let me clear up what Paul is actually saying here. There have been many arguments put forward, you may have heard some of them, to try and suggest that the Bible doesn't condemn homosexuality. And in this verse in particular, proponents will argue that Paul is actually condemning what's called pederasty. That was a somewhat common practice of certain men having younger boys as sexual partners. The reason they put forward this case is because in the Greek, Paul actually describes two groups of men, which the ESV has made one group by translating it as men who practice homosexuality. These words uh, that have been translated are malaku and asenokute. The former word means effeminate and can be used, well, came to be used, actually, as a term that referred to the passive partner in these uh, relationships. And so that was the root of the definition, but it came to then be to mean that. 
And the latter word, isenokute, is actually a word that appears for the first time in any Greek literature that we have right here in 1 Corinthians. It's quite possible that actually Paul coined the term, doing a Shakespeare, making up his own words. And asenokute is actually uh, a contraction, it's a mashup of two different words, asenos, meaning male, and kute, which means bed or to lie with. And so the argument goes, because of the novelty of this word and the known use of malaku, meaning the passive partner in the widespread practice of pederasty, this is what Paul must have been talking about. And so clearly he didn't have envisioning in his mind monogamous homosexual relationships. That's the argument. But there are some significant problems with this view. The first is that there was a word for pederasty. It was pederastes, which is where we get the word pederast. Paul easily could have used that word if that's exactly what he was talking about. But more importantly, in Jewish thought, it was unanimous that any kind of sexual activity outside of God's design, which is in, in the context of a monogamous heterosexual marriage, was sinful. That's why in the earlier lists, Paul doesn't even have to mention specific sexual sins. He just simply uses the word pornos, which means sexual immorality, because that was enough to talk about anything that lay outside of that definition. Jesus also uses the same term the same way. And perhaps most obviously, one of the problems with this uh, view is that it's quite straightforward to see how Paul came up with this word. Because the two are used often in the Old Testament, and in particular, in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13, they are right next to each other in the Greek translation, in the Septuagint of the Old Testament. You can see it there. And the definition of the word is unmistakable. Thirdly and finally, let me say that where Christians have taken a wrong turn on this is that we've somehow mangled the gospel to the point that the world thinks that being a Christian is all about living a life in accord with conservative morals. As long as you can do that, you can rightly wear the name. Now, hear me out. The, the Bible is clear about what sin is and what sin isn't. That is what I've just explained. It's very clear that sinners will not inherit the kingdom of God. And yes, that means that sinners will go to hell to receive the punishment of God's wrath for their sin. But if as Christians, what the world has been hearing and seeing from us is that the way that you do get into the kingdom of God, the way that you do inherit the kingdom of God is that you just make sure that you're not you know, committing some obvious sins that the, you know, the community really thinks is bad. And then just make sure that you, you walk and talk and dress like the people at church and then you're fine. If that's the message that the world is picking up from us, then we have failed. We have dishonored the name of Christ. We have failed to deeply understand the gospel and we have failed to deeply consider our own sin, thinking that somebody else's could be worse. 
Just look at that list again. <laughs> How many of you read it or heard it and immediately thought, ah, that's not me. I'm not any of those things. I know I did. I'm pretty sure my brain just glossed right over it. And you know what? That might be true. Maybe you don't struggle with anything from that list. Praise God. Praise God for the work of His Holy Spirit in your life in resisting those sins. But the point is, did you even stop to consider it? Did you even stop to reflect on how sin might be slowly taking over your identity as a Christian? Surely, at the very least, greed is something that all of us can be thinking about. As I said from the lists from last week, so here, Paul is talking about these sins as things that characterize a person. They are nouns that describe who someone is, not just traits that they have. Paul's describing someone who is so steeped in their sin that you would sooner call them that particular sin than you would a Christian. He's saying that such people will not inherit the kingdom. In what ways are you letting the sins of the world, the wisdom of the unrighteous, shape you more than Jesus? If we brought back Paul with us in our time machine, what would he say characterizes you? Would he say, now here is someone who has thrown their whole lot in with Jesus? Or would he say, now here is a person who really doesn't care about seeing people on eternal death row be saved? Now here is a person who loves their idols more than Jesus. Satan and our own sin and this world around us will keep pulling us in that direction of wanting to live against God's desires unless we fight it by God's grace and through His Spirit powerfully working in us. Paul is warning the Corinthians and he is warning us. He's not doing it in an explicit way with lights and sirens, but he's doing it in the same way that you might make an observation that is obviously a warning. Like saying, hey, there's a pothole in the road up ahead when you're driving at 130 kilometers an hour on the Stewart Highway. I don't need to tell you, warning, warning, there's a pothole in the road. You know that I'm giving you a warning. That's what Paul is doing here. He's telling the Corinthians that their actions are showing that they are becoming like the world rather than beaconing the gospel to the world. And if that all sounds horribly depressing to you, then I agree. 
which is why I'm so thankful for verse 11. Let's read it together. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And such were some of you. There's the joy of the gospel in six words. For those who have turned from sin and turned to Jesus in repentance and in faith, you are no longer characterized by your sin. You are no longer the idolater. You are no longer the adulterer. You are no longer the fornicator. You are no longer the homosexual. You are no longer the porn addict. You are no longer the greedy one. You are no longer the drunkard. You are no longer the reviler. You are no longer the liar. You are no longer the sloth. You are no longer the arrogant one. You are no longer the self-centered one. You are no longer the schismatic. You are no longer the one who cares more about what people think than what God thinks about you. You are no longer worthless. You are no longer the workaholic. You are no longer the rebel. You are no longer the sinner. Praise God. Praise God. Yes, you might still struggle with those sins. You might still continue to fight them as you should, but those sins no longer define you. Such were some of you. Such were all of us. We were dead in sin without a hope. But Christ has come and made us saints. Praise be to God that you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. In that wonderful Trinitarian statement that Paul reminds us of, he reminds us of a truth that he opened this chapter with. Brother, sister, if you have turned away from the world and placed your trust in Jesus, then you have been washed, sanctified, justified. Paul here uses those three words to describe the one reality. Through faith, in Jesus, you are now a saint, a holy one. You are one who is a slave, no longer to sin, but a slave to righteousness. Sin is no longer your master. And this is Paul's very point. 
just like he did in the previous chapter. He's saying to them, you are saints. Now live like saints. Reject the wisdom of the world. Reject the desires of this world. Live in the upside down kingdom of God where the first shall be last, where the last shall be first. Where it's better to be wronged and defrauded than to be the one wronging and defrauding so that you can have some kind of personal gain. Where the greatest in the kingdom is the servant of all. Where our family is the family of God in His church. Where we recognize that we still sin in this life and that that won't be perfected until eternity, but we don't get comfortable with it and we think it's okay to keep coasting along because God is gracious and merciful. Where we run that race together, where we beat our bodies together, supporting and loving one another in the pursuit of holiness so that we might be a church that is not one that looks like the world but one that stands out in it and beacons the gospel to it. You are saints. Live like saints. Could it be that the world doesn't sit up and pay attention to us as Christians, as the church. Because those radical acts of God-glorifying selflessness, that witness to a community, that here are people whose lives have been radically transformed by the gospel. Could it be that nobody pays attention because that is no longer present in our lives and in our churches? Could it be that the world has seen glimpses of that kind of thing in other communities and thought, you know, they must have it right. These Christians, they're just like us. How sad to think that people have probably left the church because we as Christians have looked more like the world than Jesus, our good shepherd, in our churches. How sad to think that Calvary Baptist Church have sought to beacon what they think is the gospel by becoming more and more like the world. That might create community. It might even create acts of generous self-sacrifice. But without the gospel, without the good news of Jesus, and without the washing, sanctifying, and justifying work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of its people, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Alternatively, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, by no means a perfect church, they'll be the first to tell you there's plenty they can work on and get better at in being a church that beacons the gospel to the world. But they, along with thousands of others all across the globe, are full of saints who've been washed who've been sanctified, who've been justified, 
and who now live to proclaim the good news of the gospel and become more like Christ. Churches that put a radical selflessness on display for the world to see. Churches that show that the wisdom of the cross does change lives and reorder priorities. Churches that (coughs) would rather suffer dishonor to their own names so that Christ's name would be honored. Will we be such a church? Let's pray. Our gracious God, the task is great. Our sin pulls us in the direction of fleshly desires. But you are greater. Your love, your kindness, your mercy is even greater. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. Was blind, but now I see. Father, in your great mercy, by your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be at work in our lives to so great a degree that the world looking in on us may see not just people who are moral, not people who think they're better than everybody else, but people who have been washed, sanctified and justified by your mercy and who now live lives in pursuit of you and now who live lives of radical sacrifice, who look to their Saviour and who are willing to be last so that we might be glorified and inherit your kingdom. Father, in your grace, do that great work in us and in our church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.